0: Welcome to episode 17 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch podcast. So if you haven't checked out that podcast, please go go find it and check that out. A lot of good feedback from last week's bonus episode on Christmas Eve, where I shared a Virtual Couch episode. Whose life are you living? Or if you want to, why does everybody else know more about my own life than I do? And uh, if you haven't checked that one out, that was last week on Waking Up to Narcissism. I want to start today. I've got Three or four emails that I think will lead into a really good episode that I want to answer some questions. And I wanted to start by just reading a couple of reviews. And I want you to know I've not been someone who reads reviews on my other podcast, The Virtual Couch. I love reviews. I think I've mentioned earlier. In the on this waking up the narcissism podcast, the how much I really appreciate the reviews, especially with this topic. Because I feel like if you even go start looking at the reviews or the stars, the ratings, that it, it, it's a little bit funny, it's a little bit like uh, narcissistic tendencies or traits, where it's definitely uh, all or nothing or black or white kind of thinking. People are saying things like, and, and I've got a, some of the reviews pulled up here where, um, right on the nose, great info, I feel heard, I can't recommend this enough. Or then it's the delivery is withering. Can we get to the info faster? And those sort of things. And I I thought it'd be a fun place to start. So of course, I would love reviews and ratings wherever you listen to your podcast. That's a little bit of the lifeblood in the podcasting world. But I also am not one who is going to put on a contest, go leave me a review, and then you might win a a shirt or something like that. Because I know there are ways to bolster those reviews or ratings. But here's what I think is really fascinating, especially because of the content that we're talking about. So one of of the anonymous reviews said, good content, the delivery is withering. The person said he makes some extremely valid and helpful points, but my brain would prefer that he speak in a more structured, less train of thought style. I wish I could stick with this one, but, and then he says, but her delivery style is withering, maybe means his delivery style is withering. And here's, let me take you on my train of thought. When I would get these kind of reviews early on five years ago in my podcasting career, it would really tear me up inside. And I realized that was a lack of confidence and it was uh, an insecurity of mine. And I found myself wanting to figure out, okay, how can I please this one person who said that their brain would prefer me to speak in a more structured, less train of thought style? And over the years, one of the things that became uh, this aha moment, and I talk about so much in the world of mental health, is we have to start with, who are you? You are the only version of you. I say this so often that has ever walked the face of the earth. You're this three billion uh, mirror, um, three billion neurons, just walking around, reacting to the world based on all of the things that you have been through. So is my delivery style rambling? Absolutely. Have I been insecure about it over the years? 100%. Do I want to change it now? I I love it. I'm interviewing myself, which I used to make fun of as well. Do I want to change it? No, not particularly, because if I find myself worrying about what other people will think about my delivery style, then I am not going to deliver the content that is actually the goal of the podcast. So while I'm not trying to sound like, I don't know, some diva or egomaniac, because I I will take all the, the criticism, be it good and bad. This is where that concept of differentiation comes in. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more today of differentiating when you are in a relationship with someone with the narcissistic traits and tendencies. Differentiation really is about autonomy and it's about being able to maintain a relationship with somebody even when you uh, have differing opinions, you come from different places, different backgrounds and too often because of our own insecurities when we are in conversation with others, if they suggest what they think we should do And if you just think about that, just step back and think what they think we should do. And then we think, oh, my gosh, I need to do this to please that one person. Then if somebody else says, well, here's what I think you should do. Oh, oh man, I got to do that instead of looking at the criticism as, okay, from a differentiated standpoint, that's those are words that those people are saying. I'm reading the words that the people are writing and I can take them in. And if it's something that I feel like, man, I really have been wanting to work on being a rambling or this tangential speaking style, then I, I might uh, read that with a little bit more curiosity and say, okay, man, I'm really hearing this. That's uh, And that's something that I really want to change. I, I want to I dig a little deeper into that. But and as you grow to be more confident in yourself, and you realize that, okay, I need to be authentic, then if that comes with a delivery style that may be a little bit more rambling, then here comes acceptance. Acceptance of, yeah, that's a, that's definitely a thing. This person is absolutely right. One of the other reviews says, can we get to the info faster? They say, such great information that's really needed. I just wish the meat of each episode wasn't buried under 20 to 30 minutes of rambling intro. And again, back in the day, I would take that as criticism. And uh, then what would I do? I would want to defend my fragile ego. We've talked about that on this podcast as well. And that is a narcissistic trait or tendency. It's also a sign of emotional immaturity. That if anyone differs with my opinion, that I take that as criticism and they think I'm a horrible person. And that's some of that stuff that we bring forth from our childhood. And this is some of that information that I'm starting to get feedback and emails from people that are saying, hey, I think maybe I am recognizing my own narcissistic traits or tendencies, which you're going to hear me start moving into the, ne- the new year, into 2022, really starting to change that vibe into understanding what emotional maturity looks like and then what we do with our insecurities. So if someone is saying, um, I wish that he would get to the meat of each episode, that it wasn't buried under 20 to 30 minutes of rambling intro, I absolutely respect that because that is that person's opinion based on all the experiences that they've been through in their life and whatever that looks like to them. If I were to say, okay, can you script out the podcast for me so I can get to the meat, whatever the meat is that you believe the meat would be, and in what time frame you would like it delivered. And again, I'm not saying this as if I'm some egomaniac, but I just want to really share that this is a foundational principle that we're going to get to when it comes to communication and communicating in particular with someone with narcissistic traits or tendencies, aka someone that is maybe a little bit more emotionally insecure. So if they don't like what they're hearing, then they feel like, okay, then I want to feel better about what I want to hear. And here comes that need for external validation. So they want me to change so that they feel better, so that they feel better about themselves. But if I'm now trying to to, uh, change in order to get the feedback that I want to hear that will make me feel better, Then we're all kind of playing off of this, this, I don't know, this game board that is that is going in all different directions that doesn't really have a solid set of uh, foundational principles or rules. This is and and this is what's funny, too. This is probably sounding like rambling to some people. And I feel like for a lot of other people, then they're feeling like, okay, this makes sense. And I think that's you're going to hear things based on where you are in your relationships, where you are in your life. Because here's this foundational, what a foundational principle that I want to start with, and it's going to get into a couple of uh, the emails that I've received, is that remember, we, we exit the womb as little needy creatures, that if we do not get our needs met, then we will die. That is in our most deepest programming. As a matter of fact, if you really look at some some deep attachment work, I remember one psychologist talking about that when a baby is born, they don't even know that they exist. They don't know that they are an entity until they interact with someone, something, the world. When they utter their first cry and then they feel touch and then they are fed, then they realize I exist because there is someone else there. Because if no one else is there, then I don't even know if I exist. And if I don't exist, I'm certainly not going to get my needs met. Now, a baby is not thinking all these things, but this is our primal survival instinct. So then as we go about our childhood and we're trying to figure out how to get those needs met, this is what we do. We try to show up in a way that will get our needs met. We try to uh, be the class clown. We try to be the, the scholar, the student athlete we may be the peacemaker we may end up taking on that role as uh, the scapegoat in our family and whatever it is even if it's good or bad our brain is is programmed at its core to say that that any interact is interaction and if there's interaction then that means that i exist and if i exist then i will get my needs met and therefore i will live and that's really what we're looking at so that need for external validation is when i start to feel like i don't feel good about myself and and I want someone else to make me feel better about myself. And that is that is what we do, again, by nature. But that is putting the power or control into someone else's hands. So when if I were to really say, hey, I want to hear all of your feedback so that I can make all these changes in my podcast, then I'm saying, hey, I feel insecure, so I want you guys to make me feel better. And then I'm probably only going to read the ones that say, the, the ones that say right on the nose or great info or love the fact that Tony rambles, waffles and gets sidetracked, goes on tangents, uses analogies, makes them come across as real and authentic. So I'll look for those and then I'll get angry about the ones that say, can we get to the info faster or the content is good, but the delivery is withering. But if I was, if I begin to feel more confident in the, the things that I want to deliver, then I'm going to put that out to the world, and I absolutely want the feedback. And I'm going to look at it from a differentiated place, where if it's something that I really am interested in or want to take a look at, then then uh, I feel secure enough to to take a deep dive into the information that people are presenting. So uh, I want you to keep that with you as we start talking about what it looks like to show up in relationships with narcissistic individuals, because we've been doing a lot of work in the first 16 episodes. To hopefully help you feel like you are not, hopefully, help you feel heard as you hear other people's examples. There's so many of them. And also, then that leads to one of the most common questions I get is it possible for the narcissist to change? And also, can you give more examples of what it would look like for healthy communication with someone with narcissistic traits and tendencies? So, I really wanna start getting to that. And we're gonna do that by answering a few questions today, reading some, some emails. So let me pull up the document that I am now rambling because I did not have it ready. Here we go. One of the emails that I received and I'm just pulling from ones from a couple of days and I still am continuing to get emails and please keep sending them. And a lot of people say, hey, I know you're busy. I don't know if you'll ever read this. And I know we're all busy. And if it's therapeutic for you to write out what your situation is, then please, please do. And just know that I'm reading all the emails and all the examples, and I'm starting to compile them and changing some details and that sort of thing. People have really resonated with other people's examples, and I'm not exactly sure what to do with that because there's so many of them, but I'm starting to categorize them and have an assistant of mine that is starting to just really put some order together of the most common examples that we're receiving. And and so we're going to do more. More with that in in the coming year so this person just said they said i recently started listening to the waking up the narcissism podcast and wanted to thank you for bringing light into a difficult subject They said that my only request is that it seems the male is frequently the narcissist in the stories. That's not the case for them after a a long period of marriage, they say. They say, I finally have some answers. And as they look back, all the signs were there, the love bombing, the constant interrupting of conversations, the lack of long lasting relationships, the never ending need for drama, the comparisons, the jealousy, the unattainable expectations, the delusions, the constant need for attention, the pathological spending, and then in their scenario, unfortunately, finally, an, an affair. They said they're still in the relationship and trying to find uh, what to do next. And this podcast provides hope. And and then I appreciate them saying they also see the narcissistic traits in themselves and wonder if they truly are there or if they just are the result of their spouses. And again, this person had said, can we. Can we address the fact that I mentioned so often that the male is the narcissist, so it's a little bit more obvious that he's saying my wife's crazy making as no one else on the planet accuses me of the things she does and I don't act the way I do with her to anyone else. It would be great if this topic got more airtime. And he says it would be even greater if narcissists could change. Thanks for the great work. So much good information there. And I appreciate the honesty. And see, this is one where I know that if I was, again, looking at this from a standpoint of criticism, then I would defend my fragile ego. But I'm looking at this from a differentiated place. And I'm very grateful that this person has shared their information in the way that they did. I had to look back and I could not remember if it was, I think it's maybe episode two, where... I did address a little bit of why I talk about male males as in the role of the narcissist. And so I pulled up the article that I had talked about in that episode. It's from The Observer from 2018, and it's called Why Men Are More Narcissistic. And uh, then it says the subheading is "and How to Get Them in Check, which is adorable. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to say that dismissive, but it's not as easy as uh, it says just in a subheading. But this is where this information comes from. The University of Buffalo condensed 31 years of research on narcissism and involving over 475,000 participants. And they put that all into a report that concluded that even taking on board differences of age and background, that men are more likely to be narcissistic than women. And in the article, they say, so what? You might say, haven't bosses and leaders always been brash show offs? And surely these character traits make them better at what they do. And they say there is some truth here, but the real picture is more complicated. According to the researcher Emily Grisvalda, assistant professor of organization and human resources at the University of Buffalo School of Management, narcissism is associated with various interpersonal dysfunctions, including an inability to maintain healthy long-term relationships, unethical behavior, and aggression. They say, in other words, our narcissism could be a sign that something is deeply wrong, both in our relationship with ourselves and therefore our relationship with the world." And then the article goes on to say, in fact, it's not hard to explain why more than women are more likely to be narcissistic. Just look at how we're socialized. So many boys grow up in families where both their assertiveness and desire for power are praised. And meanwhile, some traits, the same traits are discouraged for girls. So this is where I go into that concept of attachment. So if we want our needs met, our only desire is to get our needs met so that we will live. That's the abandonment and attachment issues in childhood then we really will start to gravitate toward the things that are praised in our childhood, the things that we are rewarded for, because that becomes the way that we are confident we'll get our needs met. And so the article says that this starts practically at birth. Uh, Note how adults interact with a baby. Is it a boy or a girl is often the first question out of our mouths, and then we play and act with that child accordingly. We affirm so-called masculine traits for boys over those seen as feminine, such as all the different ways that a person can display sensitivity. How many of us have heard real boys don't cry from our parents as we grew up? Uh, Not just once, but many times over. It's like an instruction to cut that part of ourselves off. So for some of us who grew up in this kind of culture, we found that our fear, sadness, and vulnerable feelings weren't acknowledged or even allowed. And this may have led to the development of what psychologists call a false self. And the false self is this mask to protect us from hard-to-admit feelings that are shameful, unmanly, difficult to process, and in fact, we may be so cut off from our feelings that we don't even know that they're there at all, and we feel ill at ease without ever even knowing exactly why. So the article says we mask this discomfort by becoming the captain of the football team, dominating others, being bullish, loud, and perhaps even cruel. But deep down, we feel fraudulent and empty inside because we are disconnected from the person who we really are. And that person of us contains all of our feelings, including our fear and our vulnerability. And I love this because in this article, and again, I think I referred to this maybe early on episode two or three, they say, we all have these levels of narcissism. It's part of being human. But if you're worried yours is a little outsized, then they go into ways that you can, you can take a look at that. But this is where I really want to start talking again about, again, a small percentage of the population has absolute malignant, malicious, narcissistic personality disorder. And then I feel like the majority of the rest of us are on some narcissistic scale, and that narcissism has such a bad connotation to it, that I really like talking more about its its emotional immaturity. So what does it feel like when you are arguing with someone that will not take ownership or accountability for their actions? It feels like you're arguing with a 10-year-old kid. Or I've sat in meetings with people before where we're all adults, but one one adult is telling another adult what they need to do based on some situations that occurred in this other adult's life that occurred based on 30 or 40 years of their metaprogramming or all the things that they've been through that caused them to show up the way that they did. And now someone else is now telling them, well, here's how I feel that you should behave. And then that person is saying, okay, I'll do it because we still have this deep seated need to be loved and to be appreciated. Because again, if we don't have that and we are afraid to stand in our own confident self or our own confident uh, sense of self or that confident ego then we worry that we will be abandoned. And ultimately, at our core, abandonment equals death. And another immature response that we often have is that uh, when someone disagrees with us, and when someone, even it can be uh, slights us, even if they say, oh, you're wearing that, if we feel immediately criticized, again, that's an immature response, or aka a narcissistic trait or tendencies response, where we view criticism, we view any negative uh, emotion, feeling, or even any question at times as criticism, then we're already going to this place of they think I'm a bad person or they think I'm doing everything wrong. And so I'm going to defend my fragile ego. And the way I'm going to defend that is I'm going to make sure that they feel bad. That's the gaslighting. Or I'm going to um, get extremely emotional and sad so that I will go into a victim mentality so that then they will rescue me and say, no, 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 it's okay. I'm sorry. Instead of just standing confidently And in this differentiated stance and saying, "Okay, that's their opinion. So tell me more. But at the core, at the end of the day, I have to find myself. And that as I do that, then and as I find myself, then I will show up more confidently in my relationships with this concept of differentiation. It is just, it becomes so evident, I think, when you do start to wake up to this uh, concept in general, that I still find myself in sessions even where I preach authenticity on a daily basis and somebody says something about, I don't know, name it, anything, some something about they, are, they have a political opinion that differs from mine, or they're talking about a vaccine status or a parenting tip or a whatever, and if it differs from mine, I will still find myself as a 52-year-old man who is trying to be as authentic as possible sometimes feeling, I hope they don't ask me that. I hope they don't ask for my opinion. When I'm sitting here telling them, you must be uh, confident in your opinion. It's not like we we become awoken to this and then we're perfect at it. So that that email, that is why I still refer primarily to the narcissist as the male. And I think uh, that's a great email to get because I think it'll be important for me to go back to that every few episodes and just do a a reminder that I know that there are, if you look at it as emotional immaturity, then needless to say, men and women both carry these narcissistic traits and tendencies. But we know now that, that that gives us a little better idea of why more men have those narcissistic traits and tendencies than women do. So again, thank you so much for that for that email. And there was more in that email or in that email as well that I wanted to address. Let me just pull that up again. Okay. Then he said, long last, narcissistic traits in myself. Oh, here we go. I wonder if they're, there's my mind going. Okay. He says, unfortunately, I see narcissistic traits in myself as well. And I wonder if they are truly there or if they're just the result of my wife's crazy making. I don't know this person. I don't know their wife, but the answer is yes. When he says no one else on the planet accuses me of the things she does and I don't uh, act the way I do with her to anyone else. And I, I struggled with the way to, to conceptualize or express early on in my practice. I used to say this thing that I realized only made sense to me. I wanted it to be sound so clever and say, it's the, I know you are, but what am I uh, theory, which absolutely doesn't make sense. But the example I'll give is, is talking with a woman at one point, just a kind, kind woman had been through a lot in her life, a great mom. And she would talk about how that she would yell. She would yell at her kids. She would yell at her husband. And her husband would say, man, I don't like the way you are when you're yelling. But when we would really break down the game film and step back and say, okay, what led to that situation? It was her not feeling heard, not feeling supported by her spouse. So then, and then with the inconsistency of the parenting uh, model that was going on between the couple, that then she would find herself feeling crazy and, that, and then she would react. But she was not a yeller by nature and you took her out into other environments where she felt heard and understood and there were mature conversations happening and she didn't just all of a sudden go off the handle and yell. So I do feel like one of the easiest tests, and that's why I love this email, is if you take yourself and put yourself into other, do you just randomly yell? Do you are and do you take ownership of things outside of the relationship? Do you? Yeah, do you admit fault? Do you? You're self-aware. And I even feel like the people, this is where my number one rule is when somebody says, man, am I The narcissist, and I typically say that if you're asking yourself that, then the answer is no. It's because you have the awareness enough to even question this. And that is what I feel like is going to help you on recognize maybe these narcissistic traits or tendencies. But I think it's a little bit easier to swallow when we can say the emotional immaturity. Am I standing up confident? Or do I need others to, to back up my point? Or do I even need to build a big case before I even ask a question to my spouse? Because that's going to be a little bit more of the emotionally immature way to show up in a conversation. And that's going to lead to my four pillars of a connected conversation, which I've gotten a lot of to do an episode on that. And I'm going to go into a full episode on that, I think either next week or the week after. But in a brief overview When I do couples counseling, I'm there to help couples learn to communicate more effectively. Couples come in and they often just say, can we just air out our dirty laundry? And in essence, you say who's right and who's wrong. And again, do not give me that power because if something goes south in the relationship, then, well, it was the therapist. So no, there's a lot of work to be done uh, in a couple's relationship. So my four pillars of a connected conversation are based off of the therapeutic modality called Emotionally Focused Therapy, EFT, which is amazing, founded by Sue Johnson, a Canadian psychologist. And Sue Johnson is one who says that we we are truly designed to deal with emotion in concert with another human being. And if you want to go deep dive on this, then this, again, it's so funny. Now I find myself wanting to justify so, so I can get that external validation, but saying this is a part where if somebody is just listening right now and they, maybe this doesn't um, jive with them, that I can imagine they're going to feel like, well, he's, I don't even know what he's saying. He's rambling. But this is, I'm about to spend some gold, friends. So these four pillars of a connected conversation, the, when I get couples in my office and they want to air out their dirty laundry, or when I did not have the EFT framework, and my, as a couples therapist, you're taught these basic skills as a therapist to help people reflectively listen. I'm hearing you say that you're frustrated. And then the therapist sits back and says, okay, that's great. But you're not getting anywhere with that. So when I learned EFT and then after working it for well over a decade, well over a thousand couples now, I devised this uh, this framework with the help of a friend of mine named Preston Pugmire. But these four pillars of a connected conversation, the first pillar is the assumption of good intentions, that no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, how can I hurt my spouse? And here's the asterisk. This can be really difficult when you're talking about relationships that have emotionally immature people or narcissists, narcissistic traits, tendencies, someone on the heavy side of the narcissist scale. Because it will absolutely feel like there are no good intentions behind what they're saying. So if somebody wakes up and they are angry, and that's how they, they come at you or they present to you, that it is hard. I recognize it's hard to say, well, I have to assume that, they, that there's, there are good intentions here. So when I am working in the world of narcissism, then I have a caveat, a 1B, which is or there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing. And I think this is where we can slip into that because either they ha- they did have some sort of childhood trauma, and that doesn't mean that it has to be necessarily physical abuse or sexual abuse, but it can be they had the trauma of not having parents who modeled communication or not having parents who ever took ownership of things that they did, who never apologized, who put everything back on their kid. Because the parent is the one that didn't like that feeling of unease or discomfort. Or that parent was showing up as emotionally immature. Because emotional maturity is being able to say, I am sorry, my bad, you're right. Those are signs of maturity. So when a parent even, I did it because I did it, and I'm the parent, and you you don't need to, you can't question me. Then what are we modeling to our kids? Do we think that then when they get older, they'll understand? No, they're going to grow up and say, "Okay, we don't take ownership of things for some reason. Or when I start to feel uncomfortable, then I'm either need to go get the balls out and juggle to get everybody to like me, or I'm going to just deny, deny, deny the problem goes away. So that first pillar is that even if someone is uh, in the narcissistic relationship is just the gaslighting is and what can be so hard is that if you look at that from a, there's a reason why they gaslight it's because they're emotionally immature and abandonment equals death and gaslighting is a childhood defense mechanism so they they lack the ability at time at times until they really start to do the work they lack the ability to take ownership of their problems because they feel from childhood that if they admit that they did something wrong they're going to hear about it and if they're going to hear about it then they may possibly be abandoned and abandonment at the core equals death and carry that forth into your adult years and now what's happened is your brain is trying to make sense of the world and it wants to find patterns. It wants to learn habits. That's why we we talk about habits constantly. So habits can be positive is po- positive ones. We learn to tie your shoe. We learn to drive a car. For me, I, I can't help but get up and want to go on a run after 25 years of doing that in the morning. So we have these habits that form and our brain eventually gets so good at this is what we do that it doesn't take as much electrical activity, your brain puts the these habits or these repetitive patterns of thought and behavior into this little area of your brain called the basal ganglia, the habit center. And and so the more things that your brain can do on repetition, then the more things it can put in this habit center and the less electrical activity that your brain will require, because your brain at its core is a don't get killed device, your brain um, was designed to live, it wants to live. And so your brain is operating, I believe, and I have, I have some really cool data around this that that I've had some personal experience in working with. But your brain is working off of this somewhat flawed premise, flawed premise that it has a finite amount of electrical activity. So the goal is to conserve electrical activity. So it wants to make things habitual. It wants to put things in this habit center, and that's why even when we when we're in a relationship or and we feel that it isn't good, and you hear an episode of waking up to narcissism, and you feel heard and understood. There's a little uh, bump of dopamine that hits to the reward center of your brain. It's like, yeah, no, I feel understood. I got to do something about this. And then just sit back and watch what happens to the brain. Now all the yeah, buts come. Yeah, but you married a long time. Or yeah, but the finances are tight. Or yeah, made this commitment for eternity. Or yeah, but. And so your brain says, whoa, whoa, whoa. that's a new path. And that might require a lot of electrical activity. And there's no guarantees. Well, so How about we sit this one out? Let's just uh, sleep it off. We'll think about it again tomorrow. And that's where the concept of experiential avoidance comes in. And in this day and age, it is really easy. Pull up your phone. You can play a game. You can get on YouTube or TikTok. You can watch a movie at your fingertips. You can FaceTime your friends. You can do anything other than the things that maybe would be best for you in the long run. This is truly uh, a tangent, but boy, I love talking about this stuff. And I love going on these tangents, not going to lie. So if we go back to that pillar one, assuming good intentions, or there's a reason why people do the things they do. Because already that's going to set us up to get to pillar two is that and this is the this becomes so important when you're communicating with someone with emotional immaturity, or narcissistic traits and tendencies, is that you cannot tell them they're wrong, or you don't believe them. But listen to this part, even if you don't believe them, and you are absolutely certain that they are wrong. And the reason why is if you start looking at these pillars, any one of these, if you and we've all violate these in our conversation. And if you are in a healthy relationship, and you learn these four pillars, oh, there are some good times ahead. But if you are in an unhealthy, emotionally immature relationship with your partner, you start to realize that they can't play in the sandbox, they can't stick to this framework. And sometimes that is the the help or the answers you need to know that you are not going crazy. But too often, if we can then lean in that pillar one, assume good intentions, or there's a reason why they're doing what they're doing or saying what they're saying. And then as much as then I feel immediately, that I want to defend myself and tell them they're wrong with pillar two. If I do that, now you know how that goes. If you're listening to this podcast, you know how that goes because that person is not going to take ownership. They're not going to listen. They're going to, oh, okay, here we go again. You've got some different, you're the smart one. You've got all the answers or you, you this is the problem. You never listen to me. You always tell me that I'm wrong or that sort of thing. And now what are we doing? We're out in the weeds and we're just arguing. Now we're going to tit for tat or just this back and forth. So this is why this framework is so important. I'm assuming good intentions. There's a reason. And why they're doing what, saying what they're saying, I can't tell them they're wrong, or I don't believe them, even when I do feel that that is the case. Which that's more of this mindset. It moves into pillar three, which is questions before comments, because oftentimes we can stay in there with pillar one, assuming the good intentions. Then we can be very aware of pillar two. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. But then we feel like, okay, check those two boxes. Now let me just let them know why they're crazy. But then I want to hear what they have to say. So you can see, I feel like the wisdom in pillar three is that then I want to ask questions. Okay, tell me more about that. Take me on your train of thought. And then pillar four is you cannot go, you can't retreat into your bunker. You have to stay present. And that can be really difficult, especially when your body is saying this isn't safe. And I know that this is why this is such a process. And sometimes I, well, not sometimes, I just want you to know that I want you to be aware of this framework. I want you to start thinking in terms of the framework, even before you start implementing it in your relationships or your conversations. Because what happens to us is then again, we can hang in there. Pillar one, assume good intentions. There's a reason why they're doing or saying what they're saying. Pillar two, I'm not going to tell them they're crazy or they're wrong, even if I think they are. And pillar three, hey, tell me more about that. And then pillar four, I have to stay present because too often we do those first three and then we go into the bunker, we go into victim mode and we say, okay, you're going to do whatever you're going to do. Or I guess nobody really appreciates my opinion because now we go into victim mode and we want that person to come rescue us. And here's what happens. And then and then again, the, the goal would be once they feel heard, even if they're wrong, <laughs> or even if they're the one that has the emotional maturity, that you did not go off into the weeds arguing the back and forth, the tit for tat, the pursue, the withdrawal, the fight or flight, the freeze and flee, all these things that are in the world of emotionally focused therapy, they call them the demon dialogues. But you've stayed present and they have actually expressed themselves and nobody went off into the weeds. And let me give you a really good example. There's an amazing person I'm working with right now that has been the, what's the word? They have received some of the most consistently insane financial abuse that I feel like I've ever worked with. And Right now, the husband is wanting to make a very large purchase and he's into his gaslighting behaviors. And he is now claiming that he has no money that he has no money. She knows that they have money. She absolutely knows that they have money. And so here's the thing where when he says, okay, you know, I, I can't, you can't continue to spend money because I have, I've got this large purchase that we must make. I feel called from God that we must make this large purchase, but we have no money. So if she immediately said, okay, th- that's ridiculous. We have plenty of money. Now he can get out in the weeds and say, oh, really? Have you looked at the finances lately? Or okay, you spend a lot of money and now we're going to argue. So, if she assumes the good intentions, or there's a reason why he's coming on strong, even though she knows how much they make, she knows how much is in the bank account. So she's okay. You look at this like uh, with curiosity. Interesting. Why is he coming to me saying we have no money when last week we talked about how much money we had, literally? So, pillar one. Assuming the good intentions, there's a reason why he's saying this. Pillar two, I cannot say he's wrong or I don't believe him, even though in this scenario, both of those happen to be correct. Pillar three, then she jumped into the, well, take me on your train of thought. Tell me about uh, why you don't feel like we have enough money right now. And then he just said some pretty hollow things about, well, we're just spending a lot and we have all these kids and you never know my job stability or you just don't know. Because he's trying to make this case in an emotionally immature way to say, I want to spend money and I don't want you to have an opinion. And then pillar four, then she just stayed present. She didn't say, okay, no, I didn't know that stuff. You're right. You go ahead and do whatever you want to do. Because then he's going to, if he, if she does that, then that gives him the opportunity. Okay, I'm glad you understand now. And then he gets to take that one up position. So she stayed present. And then he, then there was no argument. There was no getting out of the weeds. There was no tit for tat. And here's the beauty of those four pillars. Now you stay in the, I feel, and I worry, and I wonder statements because Remember, we've got this psychological reactance that instant negative reaction of being told what to do. So, how often do we find our spouses telling us, "You need to stop spinning," or "You need to understand that I'm not the—we don't have a money tree in the backyard—and you need to clamp down." And we hear that, and we're like, "Okay, no, I—that's not who I am." And matter of fact, I probably need to even be more aware of the things that I need to do because you can't tell me what to do. That's in our nature. So then, after. After this woman had listened to her husband and he, in essence, felt heard, then she was able to say, "Man, that would be hard. That would be really hard if you feel like we have no money." And uh, so I appreciate you sharing that. I feel like the conversation we had last week, where we talked about half a million dollars in the bank. So to me, I guess I'm operating from that place, and so staying in this "I feel" and "I worry" statements, or and and so then she's saying, "Man, so I just I worry that how one week we can." feel like we have a lot of money in the next week it sounds like we don't and man i i was under the assumption or i was under the impression that when we had the conversation about the raise that you got recently and how excited you were about how much more money was coming in so in my mind i hear that and i hear the phrase more money because now she's not saying you you don't understand you're wrong and put him in reactance mode and this is the way to get to accountability because now at that point now we're somewhat stepping into the world of an adult immature, or an adult mature conversation. Now, I am not saying that the narcissist then all of a sudden has the aha moment or the awakening or the epiphany and says, oh my gosh, you're right. But I feel like this helps the person who is trying to set boundaries or get out of the crazy making of the narcissistic relationship or, or the narcissistic conversation style is able to finally have a framework where they feel like I don't have to jump in and defend myself and I will listen. As From a differentiated standpoint, and now I have the tools to then state my opinion. And that is just the beginning. because if that's a place where it's just a matter of people not knowing what they didn't know, because no one has this uh, communication style from the factory because of our insecurities and because of our attachment issues. And this is why, in my office, when I get a couple in here and I may be sniffing around narcissistic traits and tendencies from the get-go just based on their in- intake paperwork, but the goal, the reason why I want to jump into a framework like these four pillars of a connected conversation is because it, so often people then just embrace those. And all of a sudden they have this framework, this tool, and they feel like there's hope. And now they're going to work on this together. They're going to talk about, okay, can we have a 4 pillar conversation? Can we jump in there? And, and really, I have people that literally have a handout that they follow or the other version of that is if the person is experiencing those narcissistic traits or tendencies, then at times, then that's the person that's saying, I don't want to do that. I don't really, this is different. And this is where we start to joke about the narcissist is the special flower, because if they're saying, okay, I know I came to this therapist and it's couples therapy. and I know he's talking on and on about the three or four pillars, whatever they are, but I just need him to understand this is different and, and I'm paying him good money and I need him to hear me. And that's why often then you start to see the the narcissist exit therapy or, or that sort of thing, because they're like, wait a minute, I couldn't manipulate the therapist. I need to find another one. I don't like that guy. And then they'll typically say to their wife that, yeah, that isn't this isn't working or you like him because he's just backing up you or that sort of thing. That's those four pillars of a connected conversation. And I just want to continue to give those some airtime. Because we're going to really start talking more and more into the new year about how to show up and try to stay present in these relationships. Because, again, I've talked about this in the trailer. I've talked about this in earlier episodes. But for most people, when they wake up to the narcissistic traits and tendencies of someone in their family, their spouse, their parent, their in-laws, their siblings, their adult kids, whatever it is. Then typically, if you start Googling it, it does. It says, just go, just run. And, and I know that I'll get some feedback from this, too, because it can be really emotionally abusive. And I want none of that for the listeners, for my clients, for people in my family. I want nothing more than them to be in healthy relationships. But the reality is the person that is in the relationship, there are so many more variables. They, they want to feel like they can make this work. Typically, they're the pathologically kind person that is feeling, okay, no, it must be me. There's, there must be something going on that I can that I can do to help. And so I feel like part of my whole journey as a therapist has been, let me try to create some tools that will help that person understand that there is a healthy way to communicate. And so if that is not working, even when you find this framework, then maybe that is helping you get the clarity that you need that you aren't the crazy one which is, uh, is pretty phenomenal. Let me go through two more emails and we're going to wrap this thing up today. I like this one. The person said, you're waking up the narcissism podcast came up as a suggestion in my Apple podcast app. I listened to the intro and the first episode and felt like I had been hit with a fire hose of information. I, I do get that drinking from a fire hose comment often. They said some of it I had heard and consciously knew, but much of it I was unaware of or I had suppressed. And so like many others, I started listening to the episodes multiple times and I looked, I took notes to get my bearings and each week I've eagerly awaited the release of the next episode and I've listened to most several times, which again, thank you so much for doing that. They said I'm still waking up to what all this information means to me. They had a father who had narcissistic tendencies and and they go on to say that if anyone had the full-blown narcissistic personality disorder, that it would most likely be him. But and they've spent years coming to awareness of healing and reconciliation. And this is where I think this email is so beautiful, where they say that they've had to they have reconciliation with the fact that the father that they crave is not the father that they have. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I did the Welcome to Holland episode, and I feel like that, is, that can be difficult. And again, we call it narcissistic awareness grief at times, where when we have craved a type of relationship, whether it's in our marriage or in our parental relationship, and then we recognize that isn't necessarily the relationship that we have. Again, if we jumped on the plane, and we're, I think in that poem we were going to go to Italy, and then we get out of the plane and we're in Holland, yeah, we're going to feel like we got gypped because our whole life we were dreaming of Italy. And now all of a sudden we got to wear wooden shoes and maybe we're not a big fan of windmills or the the food there. But acceptance is a pretty powerful thing. Acceptance doesn't mean that you then are done and and dead forever. But with acceptance now, it's what do we do with that information? And so when people start to become more aware of that, they are not going to have that relationship that they really craved. I feel like that's starting to help them recognize that this isn't, about, this isn't about them because oftentimes they've been the one that has been trying to continually craft or create the scenario, the almost dreamlike scenario to then have that connection with the person that they so desperately always wanted to connect with. And there's nothing wrong with wanting healthy, mature adult conversations and to feel like you have a person, somebody that you can turn to that is there for you, that has your back, that loves you. And so absolutely nothing wrong with that. And it doesn't mean that then when you if you recognize that that isn't the relationship you have, that then you need to just settle in and say, well, this is it. No, because who are you to to not rise to the occasion or not to lift yourself so that others around you will be lifted as well, especially when you have kids. And sometimes we step back and say, "Okay, you know, I just need to I just need to hang in there for the kids. But the more, and this is really difficult to talk about because I I haven't been through divorce. Uh, my parents weren't divorced, and but I work with plenty of divorce, and so it, it, it is difficult when somebody says I need to stick in there and stay together for the kids. But we got enough data now that shows. But what are you modeling? Are you modeling that you just tough it out, and hey, you win some, you lose some, and this one didn't turn out so well, or do you model that when you're not connected with another person? And when you feel like that other person is making you feel crazy, you do all the work you can to understand the situation. And then you make decisions that can be really difficult or tough decisions, but they are, are so often the right decision. Okay, the person, they also said that they've been astonished at how common narcissistic traits and tendencies were and how many people that they recognize haven't had them. And, uh, and so I just, again, I appreciate that feedback. Another one, they, they said, I just started binging your podcast. At first, it was overwhelming. I've been married to, and they talk about a borderline um, spouse for 26 years. And happily for the first six, I'm going to get back to that. When listening to each episode, it's like reliving the trauma of the past 20 years condensed into 30 to 45 minutes. I finally reached the point um, that my fear of continuing like we are is greater than the fear of the trauma that I know will, coming, uh, will come from just discussing divorce. And I appreciate the way that they framed that because it is, it's a process. It really is. They said, I appreciate your clear, light light lighthearted approach to this really heavy topic. I wish I could get to the good part, which I I do like that trend. But right now, I don't even know what that might look like. And they said, I'd just be happy being alone for a while. Thanks for advocating for us and helping me see narcissistic tendencies even in myself. So uh, maybe you can see why I'd really, that one in just a couple of paragraphs was so full of just powerful information. So, again, narcissistic traits or tendencies or maybe the emotional immaturity that we all carry with us until we do the work, until we are aware. And then part of that, then this is why I want to strip away the narcissistic traits and tendencies uh, label and maybe talk about maturity, emotional maturity. Because maybe that concept of emotional maturity sounds a little bit more powerful when we realize that I, I need to show up as an adult and say it's okay for me to want and have the desires that I want of a conversation of a connection of being able to not be the brunt of someone's attack because they're the ones that feel insecure about themselves. And so and it is a process and it does take time, but I really this is one that just hit me the last couple of weeks honestly at the beginning when this person said that they were they've been married for 26 years happily for the first six. And here's where I'm going to float out to Tony's unsubstantiated anecdotal unscientific fact of the day. And I, again, my my virtual couch podcast, I have 301 episodes, and I've tried to have every one of them be based off of some evidence-based data. So it's funny for me to even say that, hey, let me just throw out a random thing that I think. But I had somebody talking to me earlier, and they were saying that they really did have a a good first few years of their marriage. And so then it, it only leads them to think, what did they do? that then caused the marriage to split because then the next two decades were not good. And, And I just, I said, man, I've been thinking about this a lot and I really feel like there's a concept, if I go back to that, what differentiation looks like, that we're trying to work toward this mature version of the relationship where you are two autonomous individuals. Both have your own experiences, your own thoughts, dreams, hopes, your own talents and abilities, your own values based on the lives that you've each individually lived. But then we get into relationships a bit codependent and enmeshed just because that's what we do because we're so afraid of abandonment that we do show up in the dating world and we try to be the person that will be liked or loved. And so when we get in a relationship, everything's pretty euphoric because, well, yeah, no, I agree and we're we're doing good old confirmation bias. We're looking for things that we agree with and if there are things that we feel like, ooh, that, that one seems a little odd that he just said that then we often just think, you know what, but I don't know, maybe I'm misunderstood or I'm sure it will get better after we get married. And so then I feel like the first few years of marriage for a lot of people are some, they jump right in. And as soon as honestly, I hear this one more than I ever thought I would, but as soon as the ring is on and the honeymoon begins, then the person, the narcissist, the narcissistic traits and tendency person, then all of a sudden now they realize, okay, That was a lot of work to be this person that uh, was going to get my spouse. But now that we're married, now I just want to do whatever I want to do. I want to have a ton of sex and I want to watch the shows I want to watch. And I'm going to do what I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to work. I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do and they'll be fine. And I do hear a lot of that. But more often than not, the first few years aren't bad because it feels as if it is a, a good marriage where both people are differentiated because both people are doing their thing and you're sharing experiences. And But I think what's fascinating about this is the more I think about it, the narcissist is having their experience. So they're not having a shared experience. They are selfishly, but unconsciously at times, just doing the things that they want to and not listening or not hearing or not understanding their spouse. And But their spouse is typically this pathologically kind person that's just going along because this is what you do and we are having fun. There's a lot of times that things feel off, but overall things are okay. And then as you go through life and you start to have kids and you start to have jobs, you start to have financial uh, pressures and you start to accept responsibilities in your community or your church, now, now you're going through life and you're starting to realize what really matters to you and what's important to you. You're starting to have your own experiences, so then, when you try to communicate that to the emotionally immature or narcissistic person, now they view that as criticism. Wait a minute, now you're saying and acting different, and you're not wanting to just do the things I want to do and And now we start that pattern of gaslighting. Well, why would you want to do that no you You never told me that before. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do that. All these things that are more about the narcissist than the person that's now going through life as well and trying to have a connection or share experiences in hopes that, that they're saying these things to their person, that they are going to be able to communicate effectively. So then when they run into these situations over and over again where that didn't go well, trying to communicate then over time again the body keeps the score the brain likes patterns so it's i know that i can't open up about this i know i can't really talk about this and so we find that all of a sudden we're walking on eggshells just trying to figure out what is it worth it to bring this up right now i know what that's going to bring and we're about to go on vacation or it's christmas or i don't want this to affect the kids and so i'll just continually kick the can down the road because and then there becomes more and more things that you feel like you can't discuss or can't bring up because you are not dealing with someone that is coming at you with curiosity and it doesn't take everything as criticism. Until then, at some point, when you really start to state your own opinions and have your own feelings and emotions, then that's when we are often met with the oh, now you don't let things go, or you're acting really different, or boy, why all the anger? And we've talked about that in previous episodes, where that's when the narcissist starts to feel like they're losing control. So it's just fascinating. Okay, I have gone a long uh, time on this episode. This one, I will lean in and love and accept the rambling, the tangents, And I'm grateful for the people that have sent me the emails today. What did we learn? We talked a little bit more about emotional immaturity. I went pretty big on the four pillars of a connected conversation. And I hope you can see that the direction that we're moving toward in the new year is going to be one we're going to be talking a lot more about the concepts of emotional immaturity and what that looks like to show up with this calm, confident energy, differentiated using these four pillars of a connected conversation to see if you're in a relationship where it's just a matter of the things that people don't know, that people never grew up with and they don't know. And are they capable? Because the number one question I seem to get is, are, are narcissists capable of change? And if you look at that narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis, and you look at the the data, says that it, they're most likely not going to change. And I hesitate often on even talking about, again, I jokingly call them the unicorns that I get in my office, but it's the people that, that for whatever reason are here and committed to therapy, committed to this introspection, and it takes quite a while to start to recognize, oh my gosh, I'm waking up to my own narcissistic traits and tendencies. And then even then, being able to continually uh, look at any situation and the way that I'm expressing myself or showing up and saying, whoa, okay, what am I doing here? I'm wanting to feel better than or I feel insecure. So I want them to tell me I'm amazing. So I'm going to tell an even uh, more grandiose story or one up somebody. There are so many levels of of awareness that start to happen when somebody can take ownership that the fact of that they may have these narcissistic traits and tendencies. But when you're in a relationship with someone that is not going to be a safe place to to be vulnerable and open up and Uh, Then they're going to take that information and then they're going to they're going to use that. They're going to say, well, you are the narcissist or you do gaslight me Again, that that parent parenting that I talk about so often. Hey, check out that tangent after I already said that I was going to wish you a wonderful new year and, and head out. So have an amazing new year, have an amazing weekend. Again, please send me your questions, those sort of things. If you're interested in the private women's Facebook group, you can shoot me an email. And that is just continuing to thrive. I'm grateful for all the people that are helping there. And uh, next year, really big things with Waking Up to Narcissism podcast, the group community, a nonprofit, all those things are coming up. And it's because of the, the support and the, what I get the feedback from um, all of you listeners. So have a happy new year, and uh, we'll see you next year on Waking Up to Narcissism.